welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, for our scripture reading today, I'd like to try something a little bit different. And what I'd like to ask you to do as part of that different way of doing it is to grab one of the Bibles in the chair. And if you need to fight over them, go ahead. But if there's not enough, you might want to just take your phone. What I would like to ask you to do is find some way to turn to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading in verse 16, and then it'll go through chapter 4 and verse 11. It's on page, I don't know what it's on page. What is it? 967 in in the Bibles in your chair. The passage we're going to read, I'm going to read in a moment, is something we're going to look at throughout Lent. We're going to camp out in this same passage throughout the next six weeks as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the resurrection at Easter time. And in a moment, I'm going to pray that as we read this passage, I'm going to ask and invite God's Spirit to speak to us, that God's Spirit would impress on our minds and on our hearts a word, single word, or a phrase, or an image, or an idea that is contained in these verses. Every week somebody stands up here like I am right now and reads a passage from the Bible during our scripture reading and then proceeds, as I will soon enough, to offer some insights as to how that passage might shape, teach us in the way of Jesus. But sometimes what I or Dave or Alyssa or Colleen might see in a passage isn't what you see or may not be what you need. But God's Spirit certainly knows where we are and what we need. And so I want to read this passage prayerfully and invite God's Spirit to speak however he chooses. And this is what I want to say to you. If a word or a phrase or an image or an idea imprints in your mind, grabs your attention, I would encourage you to spend the rest of the time reflecting on that and pay no attention to the man with the white hair who's talking. Just kind of mull that over with God and let that be your, quote, sermon for for today. I'll offer a few insights in a moment, but I want to begin this way. So if you would stand, and if you would take a look at Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. And I want to ask you, this might be a little risky for some of you, but as I read this, if you would just hold one hand out in front of you in sort of a receiving posture of, God, what do you have for me in your word, in your truth today? And let me pray. Holy Spirit, we come now with your word open in front of us and with a story and words and ideas from the life of Jesus that is on these pages that we're about to read. And I have what I have prepared to offer, but you may have something different to give to someone here today, to imprint into their heart, to speak to a particular situation they are facing. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, to be free to roam here today, to speak to us as I read this, to give us ears that can hear it and eyes that can see it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. 
With him, I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> you may be seated. <clears throat> I mentioned this on Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service, but for over 90% of Jesus' life on this earth, he was an unknown. He was the son of a Jewish carpenter. The Bible says he was made in human likeness. So I imagine he grew up playing with friends attending school, certainly learning the Jewish faith. And part of learning the Jewish faith would have involved memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament scriptures. Later, when his earthly father, Joseph, died, Jesus probably took over his carpentry business. Undoubtedly, Jesus was poor throughout his life. For all 33 of his years, for sure, he lived in occupied territory where the mighty Romans were in charge. So over 90% of his life was what we might call ordinary, hidden, and rather unspectacular. Then around the age of 30, he went public. But his public life and ministry only lasted about three years. Now think about that. Here we are still talking about him. And he had three years in the spotlight. For over 2,000 years, people have studied his teachings and devoted their lives in service and sacrifice to him, and yet he had only a three-year stint in the spotlight. God's power clearly was on him. This was more than just a man. Just before he went public, two soul-shaping and identity-forming experiences occurred. First, He was baptized by John in the Jordan River. We just read about it. When he came out of the water, his heavenly father spoke and affirmed him. It's Matthew 3 and verse 17. God the father said when Jesus came out of the waters of his baptism, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Think about it. Jesus is about to embark on a journey that will change human history forever. A journey that will culminate in his own horrific death, and then a few days later, his resurrection. And just before this whole saga begins, his father declares his love and delight in his son. What a powerful moment for Jesus the man, Jesus the human, to hear his father declare his love and declare his delight. It is the kind of fatherly initiation that compels a son 
forward to face whatever may come. I think it's important, I know it's important, with all the rest of what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, to not lose this scene, because this scene not only frames what's about to happen out in the wilderness for Jesus, but this scene, in many ways, frames his entire life. It is the atmosphere of his existence, being God's beloved son, being able to rest in that belovedness, being able to know that he is loved by his father. And the kind of power that that gives, the kind of security that that gives, as he steps out into a very difficult and dangerous journey into the wilderness, but then into an entirely different kind of life than he has known so far. The second soul-shaping and identity-forming experience occurred right after his baptism. It's Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness all by himself. David, from the Old Testament, spent time in this exact same wilderness, running and hiding from King Saul. The wilderness is located over the mountains and hills that run alongside the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem. So you go up into those mountains and then you come down those mountains and you're into the wilderness where Jesus is about to go. And this wilderness extends for about 10 miles to the east until it stops at the Dead Sea. It's roughly 60 miles from north to south, 10 miles from east to west, the city of Jerusalem is here, and the wilderness is here, and when you come out of those hills, you're down into this terrain, and it's rocky terrain. This isn't desert sand, it's rocky, it's uneven ground, lots of crags, lots of gullies, there's water, but you've got to know where to go find it. And this wilderness event in the life of Jesus is where the Christian tradition of Lent originates. Lent being the roughly six-week period from Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, until the day before Easter, April 8th this year. And for centuries, Christians have intentionally sought God during Lent through fasting, through prayer, through reflection, through service to others. Lent, for centuries, has been an intentional time for Christians to pursue their relationship with Jesus. So our Lenten series this year is called Into the Wilderness. And for the next six weeks, we're going to mull over this event, all of it in this framework and atmosphere of God's belovedness to his children, God's love for his children. When I read this passage, there are several words and phrases and images that intrigue me. But the most intriguing is Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That verse just twists me in all sorts of directions. Jesus is about to go public. He gets baptized. His father affirms him. And then the Spirit of God leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. And part of what is happening here is showing that Jesus is the true Messiah and King who continues and eventually completes God's redemptive mission in this world. And I think this is important for us to understand, and I hope it's interesting to at least three and a half of you. 
But this kind of shows the bigger story of what is happening in the Bible. This is one of those occasions where it's worth our time to dig into this for a moment because it puts all of this in context and we start to see the hand of God in redemption history versus just in an isolated story. This will show how Matthew, writing roughly in the year 80 AD, is connecting Jesus to the story of Israel from thousands of years earlier. So let's think about this. A turning point in God's redemption story was the Israelite exodus from slavery in Egypt. This is the key event in the history of Israel. You may recall the Israelites were enslaved for over 400 years. Then a deliverer, a Messiah, we could say, named Moses, was sent by God to rescue them from slavery and lead them to the promised land, to their land where God would be their God and they would be his people and all nations on the earth would be blessed through them. But they had a long journey to travel from their old lives as slaves in Egypt to their new lives in their new land. And a lot of the journey they had to travel was through the wilderness. First, they had to leave Egypt, then cross the waters of the Red Sea, then venture out into the wilderness, slowly hike to the promised land, then enter and conquer the promised land, and all of this was possible only with God's provision and power. So that was the plan. Lean into his provision, trust him for his power, make the long hike, and enter the promised land. But plans, as we know, are made to be broken. You might recall what actually happened. The Messiah Moses came and led them out of Egypt, but then the Egyptians changed their mind and chased after them, and the Israelites ended up with their backs against the waters of the Red Sea, scared out of their brains, certain they were going to be killed or recaptured and taken back to Egypt. And so the Israelites started whining and complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt. So Moses raised his hands and he prayed and God opened the Red Sea. If you don't know it from the Bible, you might have seen the movie where this happens, but opened the Red Sea and made a dry path for the people to go through the water and out the other side unharmed. Well, all the Egyptians eventually drowned in the subsequent wave pool that was happening in the Red Sea. So now the Israelites are free from Egypt and they're on the edge of a vast and desolate wilderness, that word again. And they start their long journey, but they soon start whining and complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt because they don't have enough food and water. So Messiah Moses prays and God provides bread from heaven for them to eat and water for them to drink, but they keep whining and complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt. And in time, Moses gets fed up with this whole thing. And then Moses disobeys God. And later, Moses climbs a mountain to receive God's law. And this law was going to govern this mass of humanity known as the Israelite people. And Moses is gone for a while, taking notes and getting all this down on a tablet. And the people are down at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses to return. But they get tired of waiting for him and they start whining and complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt. So to kind of make it seem like they're back in Egypt, they take gold and they make a god out of gold and they worship and they party around it in ways that are unspeakable in a church. Finally, Moses, the Messiah, returns and sees their unfaithfulness, and he is red face ticked. So he throws down the stone tablets, carrying God's law, and shatters them. This journey is a joke. 
nice plan to begin with, but it's a joke. It's like the prequel to the Griswolds Christmas vacation. Every step of the way is falling apart. The people are messing up. The Messiah Moses is messing up. The chaos continues. They finally reach the edge of the promised land. Moses sends in spies to check it out. The spies come back and report that the inhabitants are too big and too strong and too powerful to fight. Let's call them a gang of Greg Roslers and Randy Chances. Nobody wants to take these dudes on. So the Israelites freak out and start whining and complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt. And God finally says enough. And he announces his verdict. Everyone over the age of 20 will wander around in this wilderness for 40 years till they're all dead and gone. And then a new batch of people will try again to enter the promised land. So here's the thing. There are intended similarities between the exodus from Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, the wilderness wanderings, and Jesus' journey from obscurity to baptism to wilderness. This is all intended. Just like the Israelites left Egypt, Jesus is leaving his life as an unknown. Just like the Israelites went into and through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes into the waters of his baptism. Just like the Israelites emerged from the water and went into the wilderness, Jesus emerges from the waters of his baptism, and the first thing that happens is the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness. And just like the Israelites wandered the wilderness for 40 years, Because of their unfaithfulness, Jesus faithfully wanders the wilderness for 40 days and nights. Where Messiah Moses and the Israelites failed, King Jesus succeeds and carries God's mission forward. And here's the thing. The biblical writer is putting this there, and we may not see it right away, but if we were a Jewish person, our eyes would be as big as beach balls going, wait a minute, this sounds familiar This sounds like what our people did way back then, except better, because what he did, he did it right. And this is certainly part of the significance of Jesus being led into the wilderness. But there's another part. Jesus' example models for us the importance of the wilderness in our own relationship with God. And this is where this is going to drop down a little bit to kind of be between you and me, and God. It kind of makes sense. Jesus went into the wilderness, so as his followers, there are times when the Spirit of God will lead us into the wilderness, and then we get to decide, are we going to go there or aren't we? So what is the wilderness? The wilderness is time away from everyday life demands and distractions, where it is just us and God. That's how I'd like us to think of the wilderness. It's away from everyday distractions and demands, and it's just us and God. And we interact with God. We face ourselves. Maybe we struggle like Jesus did with temptation and with who we are and who we are in the process of becoming and where we're stuck along that way. The wilderness is a good place where God's good happens because in it God prunes and forms and refines us But the wilderness is also a scary place because in it God prunes and reforms and refines us. I regularly take our dog Gus 
over to Beals Point, and it's like this all the time, but when the lake has been low over the past 20 years, uh, Beals Point is quite the wilderness space. Miles of terrain, boulders, uneven ground, and desolation. Something happens in me, not every time, but something happens in me sometimes when I'm out there in that wilderness. Obviously, it's beautiful and it's quiet, but more importantly, the props of my life are left behind when I walk out into that wilderness. My job, busyness, noise, people, roles I play, the cell phone, YouTube, In the wilderness, all that stuff is pushed aside and it's just me and God and Gus. Less distractions. Less stuff cluttering up me and God. And here's what happens. When I get in those wilderness spaces, thoughts and feelings that busyness keeps buried come to the surface. Hopes, longings, hurts, fears, sins, insecurities, ideas, prayers that are often trapped under the pile of things to do surface when I venture out into the wilderness. It's daunting at times, but because of God's love, because of our belovedness, Even though it's daunting, it is good. And in various gentle and gracious and sometimes convicting ways, God meets me in the wilderness. Now, we can't always go to a place like Beals Point, but wilderness can happen for a few nights before we go to bed. Or for a few minutes in the morning after we wake up. Or for a few minutes during the day. When we intentionally, purposefully turn away from the pile and recalibrate to God's presence through prayer or through scripture or through some other practice. We can do this for a few seconds and God will meet us in that. We entered the wilderness at the beginning of this message by taking time and inviting the Spirit to speak to us out of the Bible. And this season we're in, Lent, is a season for you and I to choose the wilderness. And enter into it. See, the wilderness is an in-between place. Or let me say it this way. A lot of life happens in between. And I think one of the things the Spirit of God wants to do is lead us out into the wilderness because the wilderness is an in-between place. Between Egypt and the promised land was time in the wilderness. Between David the shepherd and David the king was time in the wilderness. Between Jesus' private life and his public life, we just read it, was time in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God leads us when something is ending and something else is trying to begin. And it seems to me our life with God is an ongoing series of endings and beginnings. The in-between places of life. Old becoming new, as Paul often puts it. Egypt to the promised land. Except it usually goes Egypt into the wilderness. Then we whine and complain and say, I'll go back to Egypt. But the idea is to keep moving toward the promised land. 
or from what we want to what is actually God's good for us in between. And this ending and beginning happens in all aspects of our lives, friendships, jobs, marriages, divorce, family dynamics, the birth of children, the moving out of children, our own health, the death of someone we love, from bad choices to good ones, old ways to new ways. The wilderness is where God shapes and forms and refines us to navigate the shifts and transitions of life because in the wilderness, things surface. Who we are gets revealed. Things that often just sit beneath the busyness and under the pile come to the surface in the wilderness and we encounter God. See, God is always working in us by graciously inviting us out of Egypt and into the promised land. This doesn't help much to think of this generally. It helps a lot to think of this specifically. Where am I still living in Egypt? Could it be that the Spirit is inviting me to come to the promised land by going through the wilderness? God always working by graciously inviting us out of slavery and into freedom. Out of the old and into the new. Inviting us out of what is familiar to us and into what is good for us. The word Lent comes from an old word, Lente, which means springtime. find that kind of fascinating. Springtime is about new growth. Springtime is about green bracelets, something new, choosing the new. And ironically, in the biblical picture, and certainly in what we read here in Jesus' life, the wilderness is where new things begin to grow. But if we are not purposeful, the demands of our lives will gobble up the next six weeks before we can take a breath. And Easter will be here. And these next six weeks will look exactly like any other six weeks in our lives. So I'll leave it at this. Seize Lent. Enter into the wilderness. Don't let it fly by business as usual. When I think of the wilderness come to realize it's also a deeply personal place where a deeply personal encounter happens. I'm struck by the Spirit of God leading the man Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil is no dummy. So he tempts Jesus where he thinks Jesus is vulnerable. Hunger, for example, after 40 days of fasting. Power, for example, is the Son of God. Maybe he'll take a shortcut to power. Why does Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, fasting is a practice that trains us to deny the cravings in our bodies and trust God with those cravings and become more God-dependent. We don't live on bread alone. We don't live by manna coming from heaven alone. So why does Jesus need to fast for 40 days and nights? I mean, he's perfect already. He doesn't listen to the cravings of his body, does he? Our reading says he was hungry after this 40-day fast. Obviously, he was hungry. He was human. He was thinking about an In-N-Out burger as this thing was coming to an end. But what is he doing here? Is this a shtick? Oh, I got an idea. Let's put this in the Bible. Even though Jesus didn't really need to do this, then it'll look like he did it, and people will see it and go, well, we should do it. Is that just a shtick? 
Or did Jesus actually need to fast and meet God to fulfill his mission? I don't pretend to know the answer to that, but one thing is very clear. Jesus spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness alone with God before a new season started in his life. And while he was out there, he was dealing with real things that were personal to him and to the mission God was calling him to fulfill. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. You can see it up on the screen. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, like us meaning, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are also being tempted. He suffered when he was tempted. Real, personal encounter in the wilderness. And all of this reminds me, reminds us, I hope, that our journey with God is about a relationship, an actual relationship with Him. You and God. Me and God. And what He is up to and wants to do in you or in me. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but over the past several months, through a variety of experiences and conversations and times in the wilderness and promptings when I've been in the wilderness, I've sensed God doing something deep in me around relationship, friendship, connection some longings and attachments I have around these things. And if all that sounds vague, then I am communicating clearly. Various excursions in the wilderness have brought all this to the surface. And I have to tell you, it's been hard. It's been incredibly personal to me, to my life history, and to my present story. Incredibly personal. Not generic, very specific. And I don't know where it's all heading or what it's all about, but even though it's been really hard, it's been really good. I can almost feel the shaping happening within me. You know how they, somehow with photography, they show a plant that's not grown at all and then they time lapse it and you just see the thing go like that? I can almost see that, feel that happening around this within me. And it's hard, but it's really good. But if I didn't enter into the wilderness, time away, Beals Point, at night before bed, on a walk, whatever, if I didn't enter into the wilderness, I don't know if I would be aware of this because life is so busy and loud and the busyness often buries this kind of stuff underneath the pile and I think what very likely would have happened is I would continue to live with the angst of these things bugging me and affecting how I relate to others but I wouldn't be aware that God wanted to do something in it because I hadn't taken time to let it surface and actually deal with it so it would be affecting me and in some ways affecting you but I wouldn't be aware that God wanted to do something in it.
because I didn't make space for that. Here's the thing. God will let us numb ourselves with busyness if that's what we want to do. He will let us put whatever we want underneath the pile and not get to it till the pile's gone, even though the pile will never be gone. He will let us do that. Lent is a springtime to invite the Spirit to bring change to old ways and old attachments and old narratives. Lent is a springtime to invite God to lead us into the wilderness and into His good. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this beautiful example of Jesus, your Son. Knowing He is your beloved. And in that culture of belovedness, stepping forward into the wilderness and into his public life and on toward Jerusalem and on toward the cross and resurrection and the fulfillment of your plan. I thank you that however it has come about, we have a period in our lives, this Lenten season, to be purposeful, to know that we are your beloved daughters and sons. So it isn't a test, it's an opportunity to go into the wilderness, time alone with you and encounter you and be present to you. I, I just know that in a room like this, there are people who are in between places. Something is ending, something else is beginning. They've waved goodbye to Egypt or they're trying to, but they got a long journey before there's anything close to a promised land. Would you give us the courage to let these things come forward and to sit with them as we sit with you and invite you in that continue to pray for us as a congregation that we would have this kind of posture. Incredibly humble before you and each other. Ridiculously gentle before you and before each other. Give us a vision of how good it is to be your people and how good it is to be changed by you, to be bent toward your likeness, to have an eternal kind of life actually cultivated within us. Help us to see the good in this, the absolute thrilling good in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name.